0: Hello, welcome back to another episode, hope you're doing well. I know I said I was going to talk about McLuhan's view of causality this episode, but I realized that throughout the series there are two stories that I left unfinished, so I feel like we should talk about those before talking about causality. Um, The first one was the story of electronic technology, which I'll continue in a bit, but way back in like episode 1.2, I stopped Marshall McLuhan's biography in the early 60s. Right about the time he published Understanding Media and rose to fame. Let's continue with that biography, since the focus of this episode will be McLuhan's later work. By the middle of the 1960s, McLuhan's fame was growing. He was featured in Life and Newsweek magazines in the same week. NBC aired a show exploring his ideas. In 1967, the New York Times published 27 articles about him. So it's kind of funny, the media analyst was fast becoming a media object. But, at the same time, he was also experiencing spells of dizziness and blackouts. In August of 1967, he moved to Bronxville, New York, at the behest of Fordham University, his employer. He would be working with his longtime friends and colleagues, the previously mentioned Ted Carpenter, the anthropologist, and Harley Parker, an artist and designer. In October, he blacked out in front of his class, and his colleagues urged him to seek medical care, even though he didn't trust doctors. When he finally relented and went to the hospital, the doctors discovered that he had a brain tumor that was benign but, if left for any longer, would likely cause irrevocable damage. So, surgery was necessary. The operation was a success, but it took 21 hours, not the estimated 5. The only thing McLuhan wrote in his diary that day was, "ruddy gore." In the following weeks and months, he realized that there were gaps in his memory. His impatience increased, and one of his doctors pondered whether he should be institutionalized. It would take him three years to fully recover, but he immediately got back to work once out of the hospital, and the second half of his school year at Fordham proved to still be fruitful. McLuhan's fame is pretty funny to read about. He started getting all sorts of invitations, rubbing shoulders with other famous people, intellectuals and celebrities alike. Many he treated with disdain, or at the very least superciliousness, like viewing them with an air of superiority. This isn't to say that he was, like, a dick to these people. We know most of his impressions of them through his private diary. How private the thoughts were at the time is often hard to tell. For example, McLuhan and his wife were invited to a private screening of Stanley Kubrick's film, 2001, before its release, but McLuhan found it incredibly boring and slept throughout most of it. However, he didn't dislike all famous people. He also started a correspondence with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the former Prime Minister of Canada and Justin Trudeau's purported father, during his electoral race in 1968 that blossomed into a friendship. Trudeau found McLuhan's advice helpful. Much of it was centered around the new phenomenon of televised debates, which McLuhan had observed while being in the States as well, during its turbulent election in the same year. A few years afterwards, McLuhan took a liking to Jimmy Carter apparently his second favorite politician, because he, like Pierre Trudeau, was a figure in search of a ground, as McLuhan said. McLuhan also said at one point about Carter, I know this guy, he's me, and also that it makes sense that Carter was the first president from the Deep South since the Civil War, because the electronic age was creating a preference for more oral or odd tactile cultures, and McLuhan thought the American South was more oral than the North. In the mid-70s, the Miss Universe pageant contestants chose McLuhan as their favorite author, I think on multiple occasions. Um, another fun part of McLuhan's fame was, um, you might've seen this, but he was famously in a scene in Woody Allen's movie, Annie Hall. Uh, you can look it up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's, it's a scene where Woody Allen is waiting in line for a movie and there's a super annoying guy behind him, pretentiously talking about films and art and what Marshall McLuhan thinks. And then Woody Allen angrily grabs the actual Marshall McLuhan from behind a sign and asks him if the annoying man is interpreting his works correctly. McLuhan uh, did not exactly seem cut out for acting. Apparently Woody Allen gave him his lines, and McLuhan immediately edited them. And they had to shoot that very short scene 15 times. And even in the final edit, McLuhan uses the wrong word, at least from what I can tell. Uh, I'll play the clip quickly. You the know what the sequel is? to Turn of the Screw? It's the influence section. of television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, Marshall McLuhan deals with it in terms of it being a, a high. Uh, high intensity, you understand, A hot media. Uh, what I want for a blood, large sock. As a horse manure. manure extent, in it. It is, is what weird. do you do when you get stuck or, on a movie line with a guy like this behind you? Wait a minute. Why can't it's I give my maddening. opinion? This is this a free country? He, he can give you. you yeah. have to give it so loud? I mean, aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that? And, and the funny part of it is, Marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. Really? Really? I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan, well, have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny, because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so, yeah, just let me, let me, let me, come over here a second. Oh, tell I, her. Heard, I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. McLuhan's life seems to have been an interdisciplinary whirlwind, he was occupied by tasks as diverse as inventing an alternative for deodorants and perfumes that took account of the body's natural chemistry in collaboration with his biochemist cousin, bombarding the Ontario Minister of Education with letters and suggestions, being a strident supporter of public transportation, a member of 15 boards, uh, whatever that means, don't know which boards. One time he called a friend early on Easter Sunday, saying that he had, quote, the answer to the Greeks. They asked him to call them back. They're like, hey man, it's early on Sunday and it's Easter. We're eating Easter eggs. Can you call us back? Uh, but when they spoke again, McLuhan didn't know what the answer was or what even the question was. So he seems to be firing on all cylinders, <laughs> to put it lightly. After a year in the States, McLuhan returned to Toronto, settling in Whitewood Park, a secluded area that began as an attempted artist colony, by the landscape painter Marmaduke Matthews in the early 1900s. Great name, Marmaduke Matthews, although with a vague, a vague hint of dog. <laughs> um, just to give an example of how McLuhan wrote to himself, he said in his diary, quote, we're the only house on a beautiful pond filled with large goldfish. It is fed by an artesian spring and is the headwaters of a little river that runs across the Toronto campus. Have decided to dub the pond Walden 3, and use it as a basis for meditation. Joyce quips, Sink deep or touch not the Cartesian spring, as variant on Pope's, Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. Unquote. So, even in his private diary, McLuhan is punning on a pun of Joyce's. Anyways, the park had no roads in its 22 acres, but had 54 houses. McLuhan fell in love, feeling the experience of a true community for the first time. He felt that how the houses were organized played a part in this community feeling, saying, quote, Previously, I have lived only on streets, which sometimes have the quality of a neighborhood, but lineality is not compatible with community. The community character of Whitewood Park is a direct result of the circular compositioning of the houses, resulting from Whitewood Pond. When the houses interface whether circular or oval compositioning, a kind of social resonance develops that does not depend upon a high degree of social life or visiting among the occupants. Rather, there occurs a sense of theater, as if all the occupants were, in varying degrees, upon a stage. Something of the sort happens in any small village, and builders and planners could easily achieve rich community effects, even without a pond, simply by locating, dwelling in non-lineal patterns." <laughs> well. He makes it sound inviting i would love to live in a place like that two of his books were published during this period through the vanishing point with the aforementioned harley parker and war and peace the global village with quentin fiore and jerome eagle i read the former but not the latter through the vanishing point is a really cool book Uh, most of it is like on the left side a poem or a passage from literature or a painting and then on the right side McLuhan and harley parker's aphoristic analysis of the poem or passage or painting. It's a really cool book to have a physical copy of, due to the pictures and the layout. It's in, I'd say it's in the top four books of his I'd recommend, but it probably only makes sense once you've read his denser work uh, or listened to an extremely long podcast series about it. Part of what makes McLuhan's writing so peculiar is that his methodology is consciously one of the electronic age, especially after understanding media. A lot of the terms he uses when comparing the effects of typography to the effects of electric technology can be applied to his own writing. He's not giving the reader packages of information. He's probing. He does not state axioms and then build off of them. He does not fix the reader's point of view and then fill in the world as he sees it. No, his prose are meant to be like the drawings of pre-literate Mesopotamia or the carvings of the Avilic. They're supposed to create their own space, without reference to other objects or fixed surroundings. McLuhan combines passages from physicists, artists, economists, with pictures of ads in the newspaper and children's rhymes or fairy tales. He's trying to fight against the separation of thought into different genres of inquiry and other things he thinks followed the invention of print. Economists study the economy, physicists study physics, biologists study life, anthropologists study cultures, but McLuhan jumps from one discipline to the next, seeing what he can learn from the interplay. Norman Mailer said that McLuhan had a mind that could only think in metaphors. And metaphors are definitely a part of this jumping between disciplines and seeing which bits resonate with each other. Stuff like, hmm, chemists talk about resonant bonds and molecules? That seems analogous to this concept by a guy who writes about Chinese economics. McLuhan's studies also impacted his Catholicism. He lamented that the church's bureaucracy had been taken over by a post-Gutenberg stress in the visual unequipped for the 20th century but he said that only a christian can deal with the problems posed by this new media landscape because to do so one needs to be ready to quote undervalue the world altogether unquote. and because individual freedoms were lessened in the electronic age the only remedy being the strengthening of the self through community and sacrament he also believed that the church was stifled by its connection to greco-roman structures and language According to Terence Gordon's biography, in 1969, spiritual matters became more pronounced in McLuhan's correspondence. In one letter, he said that he did not, quote, think of God as a concept, but as an immediate and ever-present fact, an occasion for continuous dialogue, unquote. Elsewhere, he calls himself a Thomist, meaning a follower of Thomas Aquinas, saying that he was, quote, a Thomist for whom the sensory order resonates with the divine Logos. Continuing by saying, I don't think concepts have any relevance in religion. Analogy is not a concept. It is community. It is resonance. It is inclusive. It is the cognitive process itself. That is the analogy of the divine logos. I think of Jaspers, Bergson, and Buber as very inferior conceptualist types, quite out of touch with the immediate analogical awareness that begins in the senses and is derailed by concepts or ideas, unquote. Jaspers, Bergson, and Buber are all three philosophers from the late 19th, early 20th century. The seminal event of 1969 was, of course, man landing on the moon, but McLuhan thought that landing on the moon was the height of pomposity, also saying that the space program had foregone the Earth and turned it into planet Pluto, another pun. In 1970, McLuhan started traveling incessantly and published two books, Culture is Our Business and From Cliché to Archetype. Culture is Our Business is kind of an updated version of The Mechanical Bride, his first book, written almost two decades earlier. It's like Through the Vanishing Point, too, but instead of a poem or a painting on every alternating page, it's an advertisement. The facing page has McLuhan's aphorisms. And I'll talk about cliche and archetype later in this episode. Marshall's son Eric began teaching and editing a newsletter. Eric came up with the phrase media ecology, now in common use. In the early 70s, Eric more and more became a collaborator with his father. McLuhan had further medical trouble in 1971, restricted blood flow, but he was saved by medical anomaly. I'm not going to get too into the specifics here, but essentially his brain wasn't getting enough blood through the normal channels, but the external carotid circulation All these small blood vessels that bring blood to the face, the scalp, the jaw, those had formed channels that connected to the brain. Uh, Doctors hadn't seen anything like it in a human before. McLuhan saw it as a work of God. In 1971, McLuhan wrote Take Today, the Executive as Dropout. The contract was signed in 1968, and McLuhan foresaw a 90 or so page essay about the businessman in the contemporary age. In the ensuing years, he dropped one collaborator and took on another and ended up with over a thousand pages, much to the chagrin of the editor. To quote McLuhan in a letter to a reviewer, quote, the overall theme of the book is the shift from hardware to software and centralism to decentralism and specialism to full understanding, unquote. In the last years of his academic career, Kluin started investigating Ferdinand de Saussure, the founder of linguistic structuralism, which eventually broadened into all the other forms of structuralism, as well as also studying audience study, phenomenology, and brain hemispheres. He also became obsessed with the rhetoric. Remember, there are five divisions, or canons, of classical rhetoric—invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. McLuhan started focusing on that, and he started seeing the five parts of rhetoric in everything, everywhere. It became another one of his probes. I'll come back to this later. In 1976, McLuhan had a heart attack. In 1978, McLuhan investigated Derrida, Foucault, Jean-Marie Benoit, and Paul Recourt as his health was failing. He also became heavily involved in collaboration with his son Eric. This collaboration ended with the book Laws of Media which was organized and published by, by Eric after Marshall's death. The book started when they were looking at criticisms of understanding media, written about two decades prior. They noticed that these criticisms were either pointing out like minor factual errors in the work, or complaining that the book may be interesting, but it wasn't scientific. So McLuhan was like, Okay, well, what constitutes scientific? What would need to be changed for my media criticism to be scientific? His answer comes from Karl Popper. Something stated in such a manner that it could be disproved. So Marshall and Eric set out to find disprovable statements in his previous work. I definitely think scientists and philosophy of science people would dispute whether the result is properly scientific. Um, Yeah, I don't really... I wouldn't call it science either, myself. Um, they find some laws, write them out in basic form, and then go, okay, try to disprove it. Which is kind of different than uh, like hypotheses and experiments. You know, the, the classical understanding of scientific method. The methodology that they use to get to these laws is McLuhan's strange probes. There's no theory, only exploration. And due to the ambiguity of language, it seems to me like people could probe in different ways and come to different conclusions. That's why most science requires writing out the methodology of the experiment in a clear and thorough way so that someone else can repeat the experiment exactly. Or maybe I'm being too harsh on McLuhan. He does seem opposed to the typographical methods of which modern science would be a part of. Marshall and Eric are trying to make a science not of the visually-based dialectics that concerns itself with figures abstracted from their grounds. But a science of grammar and rhetoric, a science that isn't just the matching of labels, it isn't just fitting things into a pre-existing framework, it isn't focused on concept, but on percept and process, on ground and figure, not just figure. However, I think it's not super worthwhile to argue about whether it's science or not, it's better to just say that they're trying to find laws of media that hold for all examples of their broad definition of media. And another thing to mention. While arguing that it's scientific, they also argue that their laws are still probes, so who knows? Let's go back to the Trivium. The McLuhan's trace the origin of grammar to a disciple of Anaxagoras, someone named Metrodorus, a pre-socratic thinker in ancient Greece, who treated elements in the Homeric epics as symbols for natural phenomena, like various gods representing a certain force of nature, that sort of thing. This analogical method of analysis. Influenced the subsequent thought of the Greeks, especially the Stoics. For instance, the Stoic Empedocles thought the world was composed of four elements fire, air, water, and earth, and used a god as a symbol of each element Zeus, Hera, Nestus, and Aedonius, respectively. For Empedocles and other Stoics like Cornetus, analyzing the natural world was very tied to etymology. The history of words, and philology, the study of language. Then there was a rise of the dialectic with Aristotle, but many early Christian theologians were grammarians, believing that the methods for analyzing the words of God, the Bible, could also be used to analyze the creations of God, nature. In fact, still influenced by the oral meaning of logos, they thought that God's word was his creation, and his creation was words. McLuhan says, quote, The Logos of creation explicitly presents us with the created order as a speech, in which the words are things and things are words, The Bible doesn't just contain literal narrative. It also contains allegory and symbol and moral lessons and anagogy, um, this fancy word meaning the spiritual and the mystical. In a similar, analogous way, nature doesn't just contain matter. Many medieval theologians and philosophers carried on this tradition. But with scholasticism and the heightening of the visual that resulted from print, dialectics gained precedence, figures abstracted from their grounds. The McLuhans added to the title, Laws of Media, the subtitle, The New Science. This is because they see themselves as completing a trilogy that had been centuries in the making. Um, It's also another reason they call their laws scientific. The first book of this so-called trilogy was Francis Bacon's Novum Organum, Latin for new instrument, or new tool. It was written in 1620. And the second book in this trilogy was Giambattista Vico's La Cienza Nuovo, or New Science, from 1725. The McLuhan's see these books as more recent examples of the grammarian rhetorical tradition, fairly unique for distancing themselves from the dominance of visual space and dialectics of the post-print era. So that's some context for Marshall McLuhan's final major work. Marshall and Eric found four laws, and for the rest of both of their lives, they tried to find a single example where any of the four don't work. So I challenge you to come up with examples where the four laws don't apply. And as I mentioned, it isn't a very exact science, as most people would conceive of it, because they are trying to be in this grammarian tradition and you know, where, where, they, where they privilege language a lot, but language is pretty ambiguous, right? So, you know, parameters and definitions of terms aren't rigidly defined or anything. So if you do find something that seems not to fit with one of the laws, it would be pretty hard to tell if it for sure didn't or not, because it's not very exact. However, McLuhan makes it easier for you to find contradicting examples. You don't need to confine your analysis to forms of media. The McLuhan's realized the four laws apply to any human artifact. In other words, anything that humans make. By artifact, they don't just mean material things either. Philosophical theories, styles of art, these are also artifacts. Even visual space is an artifact. Interestingly, they seem to imply that acoustic space is not. That's because acoustic space is a space that humans were naturally in before any technology. Whereas visual space is a result of writing and phoneticism and, you know, the heightening of the visual. Another another interesting thing, nothing made by animals is an artifact. So spider webs, beaver dams, bird nests, none of these are artifacts. This is because the McLuhan's think that artifacts are kind of intrinsically connected to speech. Um, or, Or rather, they have a similar structure, reviving the oral understanding of logos. They say, quote, each of man's artifacts is in fact a kind of word, a metaphor that translates experience from one form into another, unquote. They think the truism, that the thing that sets humans and animals apart is speech, is true, but on a much deeper level than people usually mean. All right, so they found four laws, three of which were in understanding media, sometimes called different things though. And they called these four laws, Um, always appearing together. They call these four laws the tetrad. The tetrad, these four laws, they don't have an order. They aren't sequential, since the McLuhans are trying to go beyond the sequentiality of typography and literacy. All the laws exist at once in any media, and the goal is to try to explore the linguistic aspects of media and other human artifacts, trying to figure out their grammar and syntax. The first law is enhancement or extension. The question to ask of a technology here is, what does it enhance? For example, the wheel enhances transportation of material and individuals. This first law comes from the idea that all technologies are extensions of our bodies or senses. They enhance an aspect of our bodies or senses. The second law is closure or obsolescence. This comes from McLuhan's idea that there's an equilibrium or a homeostasis In technological environments. Homeostasis is a word usually used in biology. For example, mammals have mechanisms in their bodies that work to steady their core temperature when there's a change in the environment. Shivering is one of these mechanisms. When a mammal's skeletal muscles shake, they expend energy to produce warmth in the body. In a similar kind of way, McLuhan thinks that the introduction of a new technology alters the entire technological environment but it always pushes another technology, or other technologies, into obsolescence. The first and second laws work together. A good example is the photograph, which enhanced the ability to produce three-dimensional linear perspective images of the world. This meant that people could take pictures of themselves, so the thing that was obsolesced, or one of them, was portrait paintings. Before photography, you'd have to hire a painter to get a still image of yourself. It also might obsolesce linear perspective painting in general, since it was right around the invention and popularization of photography that painting got all weird, stuff like cubism, which we'll talk about in further episodes. Maybe it became kind of boring to see a painting of something that a gadget one owns could make with a click, right? It's just much cooler to paint things harder to capture with a camera, like melting clocks. Right. The third law is reversal. And this is a good time to finish the history of electronic technology that I started last episode. And as we look at a brief history of photography and motion pictures, we'll start to understand this third law, reversal. The development of photographs and motion pictures was not entirely electronic. And like so many other inventions, as we talked about, many people came upon the process independently. I'll just focus on one of them um, for photography. You can look up the other two I know about. William Henry Fox Talbot, and Hercules Florence, if you're interested. Um, but the invention of photography is typically attributed to Joseph Nicephore Niepce. Photography, in essence, means creating a permanent image by processing light hitting a light-sensitive surface. Niepce invented something he called heliography, literally meaning sun drawing, a very cool name. And in 1822, he succeeded in making the first photograph. It was of the Pope at the time, but it didn't survive very long, he damaged it trying to make copies. Heliography is a little complicated. Niepce used a type of natural asphalt, called Syrian asphalt, that dissolves slower after being exposed to light for a period of time. He coated this asphalt on stone, or metal, or glass, then put an engraving on top of it, then put it in the sun. After a while, only the part of the asphalt that the light was blocked from by the engraving be dissolved, leaving the rest. The asphalt that was left could be printed. So it wasn't like he was taking a picture of something in the world, he was using this process of heliography to make the engraving that you can then print with. Eventually, he managed to use this process to take a picture of the view outside of his window using camera obscura in 1826. At one point, the photograph was lost for 50 years from 1905 until 1952. Um, Camera Obscura, by the way, is this thing that had been around for a while, and McLuhan notes that it became really popular after print. He sees it as an example of the increase in visual space and visual stress, and um, related to the development of linear perspective. It's this weird trick where if you have a dark, dark box or a dark room, and you put a little pinhole on one side, the image of outside is projected onto the wall opposite the hole. It's really weird. I honestly don't know how it works, (laughs) I should look that up. After Niepce invented heliography, he teamed up with Louis Daguerre. They made some more progress in photography, but after Niepce died, Daguerre invented the Daguerreotype, which, unlike the time-consuming heliography, became widely used in the 1840s and 50s. This technique involved silver-plated copper, which was made light-sensitive with mercury fumes, then doused in some sort of chemical liquid. Often, Daguerre is attributed with the invention of the photography due to how popular the Daguerreotypes were. A little bit more popular than heliography, for obvious reasons. After Daguerre, there were a whole bunch of different methods of photography. I'm gonna, this is gonna be a barrage of facts. Um, The first color photograph was taken by Thomas Sutton, but the method had been invented by James Clerk Maxwell, the father of electromagnetism. The method was to take black-and-white photographs through three differently-coloured filters, one red, one blue, one green. Obviously, this didn't really cover the whole colour spectrum, so it was not a method that lasted. A better method was invented in 1873, but it wasn't until 1907 that a type of colour photography was widely commercially available. In 1935, Kodachrome became available, versions of which were primarily used until the 80s and 90s. Photographic film was invented in 1885. Digital photography began being developed in 1957. Just to get a rough idea of the timelines. Photograph is a fun word, if you think about it. Photo means light, right, like the same root as photon. And a photograph is literally a graph of light. If you think of the rectangular photograph as having an x and y axis and every point in the photograph as a data point of light. Unfortunately, that's not the etymology of the word. Graph also means an instrument for recording something, but I think that's a fun way to think about it. (laughs) Fun coincidence. So what did McLuhan say about photographs? He said a lot, but I'll just go over a few remarks he made. A photo is like a perspective painting, right? Three-dimensional, a snapshot, removing time from the image, It gave a permanence to instance. Exactly repeatable images could be reproduced in a much more efficient way than woodblock printing. McLuhan says that it turned us from typographic humans into graphic humans. It's a heightening of the mechanical, the typographical age. McLuhan thinks that the fact that with mechanical means people could reproduce 3d linear perspective, um, this led to painters becoming more abstract. Elsewhere, however, he calls photographs statements without syntax, meaning, I think, that they're more like the gestalt of the ideograph than the heightening of the visual. The photograph is a first example of the third law of media, reversal. Reversal of visual technology. However, um, we can explain it better by looking at motion pictures. So let's talk about the history of motion pictures now. McLuhan notes an irony that the most complicated wheel technology in his time, the most complicated technology involving wheels, the wheels that are in the movie camera and the movie projector, began as a bet about legs, the thing that wheels extended in the first place. The bet involved Leland Stanford, some super rich Californian in the late 19th century, who was at some point the governor of California and who also founded Stanford University, along with his wife, Jane Stanford. A commonly debated topic at the time was whether all four feet of a galloping horse were off the ground at some point, um, or whether there was always some contact with the earth. (laughs) You know, it was a time before television, I guess. Um, Stanford took the position that there was a period when all the feet of a horse were off the ground in both a trot and a gallop. I can hear the monocles dropping. When he made that declaration. Obviously, the reason it was commonly debated was because you couldn't tell with a naked eye. So Stanford hired a photographer named Edward Moybridge to help him win this argument sometime around 1872. The experiments had to be stopped for a while because of something related to photography. In um, 1874, Moybridge found a photograph of his and his wife's six-month-old baby named Florado. With a note on the back in his wife's handwriting that said, Little Harry. Moybridge was immediately suspicious because there was a drama critic who often went to the theater with his wife, Flora. His name was Harry Larkins. Then Moybridge found love letters from his wife to Harry Larkins. He thought these two pieces of data meant Larkins had fa- fathered the baby that he thought was his, so he tracked Larkins down. And when Larkins opened the door, Moybridge said something like, Good evening, I am Moybridge, and this is a message from my wife, and then shot him to death. Moybridge um, pleaded insanity, but then indicated that his actions were premeditated and deliberate. Like, he traveled for hours to find Larkins, so it wasn't exactly uh, you know, in the fit of passion. The judge told the jury to reach a verdict from the following four. Guilty in the first degree with the death penalty. Guilty in the first degree with life imprisonment. Not guilty or guilty by reason of insanity, explicitly telling the jury that knowledge of adultery does not make murder justified. However, the jury completely ignored the judge. They threw away the insanity plea but acquitted Moybridge nonetheless because they thought the murder of Larkins was justified. <laughs> I, I don't know how laws work. It doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. The story has a depressing end, though, unfortunately. Moybridge's wife died five months after the trial of illness, and their son was put in an orphanage. I guess Moybridge assumed it wasn't his. However, later photographs from when the child grew up show him looking a lot like Moybridge. So, fun story. <laughs> Good job, Moybridge. Good job. Anyways, Moybridge finally had all this family drama. Um, you know off his plate so he could return to the super important horse bet and in, ni- in 1877 he proved with a photograph that all four feet were off the ground when trotting then on june 15th 1878 he photographed a horse at a gallop using 24 cameras side by side which were activated by trip wires that the horse ran through so obviously if you have a bunch of photographs look very similar together you could Um, run them together to make it look like a motion picture. Um, So that's the first motion picture. And just a side note, in 2017, scientists stored this first motion picture inside DNA. Just like how you can encode video in a string of ones and zeros, you can also encode it in a string of G, T, C, and A's, right, the four components of DNA. Anyways. In the 1870s, this first motion picture could be seen in this way using Muybridge's invention, which he called a zoopraxiscope, a predecessor to the movie projector. Um, I wish we kept that name though. And an inspiration to Thomas Edison and William Kennedy Dixon's kinetoscope. (laughs) It's it's really funny, in these early days of motion pictures, um, there were a whole bunch of similar inventions for viewing motion pictures, all grasping towards movie projectors, but they all had like crazy names for some reason. Um, I'll read a list. There was the Electrotachioscope, the pleograph, the Chronophotographic Camera, the Kinesigraph, the Idoloscope, the Theatrograph, the Bioscope, not Bioscope, Bioscope for some reason. There was the Chronophotographic Gun, the Phanac, (laughs) K- <laughs> Phanakistocope, the phantoscope, the Vitascope, and the mutoscope. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, anyways, in the 1880s, a, gli- a guy named Louis Le Prince, another great name, made a motion picture camera with 16 lenses. And the camera would just take pictures super fast to give the appearance of motion. However, every lens was taking photos at a slightly different angle, so it was far from perfect. Things looked kind of weird. In 1888, though, Le Prince made the first single-lens motion picture camera. The first film ever taken with this was called Hay Garden Scene, a two-second clip of four people walking around a garden. Um, If you Google it, you can watch it. Then, in 1889, Louis Le Prince used a projector to show the moving images on a white screen. And the film was born, without zoopraxiscopes or whatever. It took until the early 1900s for cinemas to get going, though. However, the following year, Le Prince was scheduled to do a public screening in New York of the world's first single lens motion picture. On the 16th of September, 1890, he said farewell to his brother in Dijon, France, and stepped on a train heading to Paris from where he would head to New York. However, the train arrived in Paris, and Le Prince did not. Neither did any of his luggage or belongings. He was never seen again. Some accused his brother of killing him for a variety of reasons, since he was the last person to see Le Prince alive. His wife, Elizabeth, for years afterward, would, would accuse Thomas Edison of hiring a hitman to kill Le Prince, since Thomas Edison wanted to be the inventor of motion pictures. Something that adds to this theory is that Le Prince's son, Adolf, became involved in fighting for his father's legacy after his death. In 1891, Adolf served as a witness in a court case where Thomas Edison was trying to win the title for the inventor of film. Adolf obviously argued that his father was the inventor, not Edison. In 1901, Adolf was shot to death while hunting. Nobody knows if it was self-inflicted or not. Another mysterious death. There are other theories involving more mundane things, like Le Prince being killed by thieves or simply committing suicide, or getting into some sort of accident. Another juicy theory, though, um, I don't think it has too many legs to stand on, but it's good to mention, is that Le Prince was killed by the French government, who some allege were afraid of another revolution at the time, and had organized a force to hunt down anti-government figures, and some people think Le Prince qualifies for some reason. Whatever happened, it's a very cool mystery. I like how both the uh, invention of the photograph and the movie <laughs> both involve uh, you know, murder. <laughs> very interesting. But anyways, back to McLuhan. Here with the movie, we see an example of McLuhan's third law of media, reversal. Quote, Every form pushed to the limit of its potential reverses its characteristics, unquote. Or, as the classical Chinese text, the I Ching says, by the law of change, whatever has reached its extreme must turn back. An example is electronic printers. This is the heightening of the printing press. Many or most people just have a printer in their own home. But think back to our discussion of book production in the Middle Ages. Remember how authors and scribes were kind of merged into one? There wasn't really a clear separation or a clear definition of an author. Also, the reader merged with the scribe and author, especially in schools. With print, though, these became defined things. Scribes were replaced by printers who were knowledgeable with machines. Authors became a defined thing with the beginning of intellectual property laws and the rise of publicity and individualism and mass markets for books and all of that. And the reader became the consumer, the one who bought the book from the book market that the printers created. But with the heightening of print to the extreme, the electronic printer, this reverses these characteristics of the printing press and the author and publisher merge together once more. McLuhan says that the reader also merges with these, but I don't really get how. Another example would be weaponry. History has been a slow arms race between various competitors usually resulting in, or at least very tied up with war and violence but the heightened form of weapons, nuclear weapons, made relative peace, right? at least so far, and at least between countries who both have nuclear weapons. Another example is the wheel. The wheel at its fastest, most extreme form is found in the airplane. The wheel is only used to used to get the airplane moving fast enough so that wheels aren't necessary. Right? The wheels are heightened to obsolescence. That's kind of what McLuhan's getting at here. But back to motion pictures. Motion picture is just a bunch of images put together in a sequence, right? And when you run the sequence at the proper speed, you don't see the sequence, it just looks like a recreation of the filmed motion. See where I'm going here? McLuhan says that this is the extreme form of the mechanical, linear, sequential, assembly line technology that got going after print. It reverses back into an organic form this is kind of a metaphor for the results of electronic technology in general, because a big part of electronic technology for McLuhan is the speed. Um, and you know with such high speeds, sequence becomes irrelevant. McLuhan says, quote, is not the mechanical at its best a remarkable approximation of the organic, unquote. That's why McLuhan often calls the electronic age the organic age. McLuhan thinks that the main reversals of the electronic age are hardware reversing into software, jobs reversing into roles, and centralism reversing into decentralism. McLuhan says that this law of reversal can be likened to a phrase from information theory. Data overload equals pattern recognition. There's too much data to keep track of using typographic modes of thought, like reductionism, linear efficient causality, these sorts of things you have to look for patterns to understand, right? You can't can't keep track of every molecule in a cloud, but you can look at the patterns of clouds, right? Meteorology. McLuhan says, quote, at electric speed, all forms are pushed to the limits of their potential, unquote. Film also makes us see the world in new ways. It extends our vision into new realms, like a time-lapse of a plant growing or something. McLuhan has a lot of thoughts on television, comparing it to film, but I don't think I want to get into them all that much. It'd require a ton of explaining with not that much reward, at least. I don't really find his thoughts on TV all that compelling. And a lot of it has to do with how, when he was writing in the 60s, 70s, television and movies were very distinct things, right? You'd go to a movie theater and watch a film on a projector, you go home and watch your television um, that has a cathode ray tube, whatever it's called. Um, but nowadays, right, we watch movies and TV on our computers, um, you know, it, it, there's also a distinction. Like like a big part of it, a big part of his analysis of TV versus movies is that um, the fact that the light comes through the TV, right, like the light is behind the TV, and then it comes out. Whereas with the movie theater projector, um, the light is projected on the screen. So light on versus light through became another one of McLuhan's probes that I haven't really talked about that much. Uh, It has to do with medieval architecture, literary analysis. He applies it to a bunch of various topics, Um, like illuminated manuscripts, for example. That's a big part of it. It's funny. There's a guy who disagreed with McLuhan's views on television so much that he wrote an entire book arguing against it. Um, so, I mean, I might do the same if I was forced to talk about McLuhan in television. And if anyone listening has read or reads McLuhan and finds value in that part, let me know. Convince me. I can be convinced. So, we've gone through three of McLuhan's four laws of media. And don't worry, we'll we'll talk about them in more depth next episode. Um, and all three of these had their beginnings in understanding media enhancement or extension obsolescence and reversal the fourth law is called retrieval and it comes from his book cliche and archetype um and i'll i'll start talking about that next episode see you then